Chapter 5 of The God of All Comfort This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eris Allen The God of All Comfort by Hannah Whittle Smith Chapter 5 he spake to them of the Father. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. One of the most illuminating names of God is the one especially revealed by our Lord Jesus Christ, the name of Father. I say especially revealed by Christ because while God had been called throughout the ages by many other names, expressing other aspects of his character. Christ alone has revealed him to us under the all-inclusive name of Father, a name that holds within itself all other names of wisdom and power, and above all of love and goodness, a name that embodies for us a perfect supply for all our needs. Christ, who was the only begotten Son in the bosom of the Father, was the only one who could reveal this name, for he alone knew the Father. As the Father knoweth me, he said, even so I know the Father. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. In the Old Testament, God was not revealed as the Father so much as a great warrior fighting for his people, or as a mighty king ruling over them and caring for them. The name of Father is only given to him a very few times there, six or seven times at the most, while in the New Testament it is given about two or three hundred times. Christ, who knew him, was the only one who could reveal him, no man, he said, knoweth who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. The vital question then that confronts each one of us is whether we individually understand that Christ speaks to us of the Father. We know he uses the word Father continually, but do we in the least understand what the word means? Have we even so much as an inkling of what the Father is? All the discomfort and unrest of the religious life of so many of God's children come, I feel sure, from this very thing, that they do not understand that God is actually and truly their Father. They think of Him as a stern judge, or a severe taskmaster, or, at the best, as an unapproachable dignitary, seated on a far-off throne, dispensing exacting laws for a frightened and trembling world. And in their terror, lest they should fail to meet his requirements, they hardly know which way to turn. But of a God who is a father, tender and loving and full of compassion, a God who, like a father, will be on their side against the whole universe, they have no conception. I am not afraid to say that discomfort and unrest 
are impossible to the souls that come to know that God is their real and actual Father. But before I go any further, I must make it plain that it is a Father, such as our highest instincts tell us a good Father ought to be, of who I am speaking. Sometimes earthly fathers are unkind, or tyrannical, or selfish, or even cruel, or they are merely indifferent and neglectful, but none of these can by any stretch of charity be called good fathers. But God, who is good, must be a good father, or not a father at all. We must all of us have known good fathers in this world, or at least can imagine them. I knew one and he filled my childhood with sunshine by his most lovely fatherhood. I can remember vividly with what confidence and triumph I walked through my days, absolutely secure in the knowledge that I had a father, and I am very sure that I have learned to know a little about the perfect fatherhood of God because of my experience with this lovely earthly father. But God is not only a father, he is a mother as well, and we have all of us known mothers whose love and tenderness have been without bound or limit, and it is very certain that the God who created them both, and who is himself father and mother in one, could never have created earthly fathers and mothers who were more tender and more loving than he is himself. Therefore, if we want to know what sort of a father he is, we must heap together all the best of all the fathers and mothers we have ever known or can imagine, and we must tell ourselves that this is only a faint image of God, our Father in heaven. When our Lord was teaching his disciples how to pray, the only name by which he taught them to address God was, Our Father, which art in heaven. And this surely meant that we were to think of him only in this light, Millions upon millions of times during all the centuries since then has this name been uttered by the children of God everywhere. And yet, how much has it been understood? Had all who used the name known what it meant, it would have been impossible for the misrepresentations of his character and the doubts of his love and care that have so desolated the souls of his children throughout all the ages to have crept in. Tyranny, unkindness, and neglect might perhaps be attributed to a God whose name was only a king or a judge or a lawgiver, but of a God who is before all else a father and, of necessity, since he is God, a good father, no such things could possibly be believed. Moreover, since he is an everlasting father, he must in the very nature of things act always and under all circumstances as a good father ought to act, and never in any other way. It is inconceivable that a good father could forget or neglect or be unfair to his children. A savage father might, or a wicked father, but a good father? Never! And in calling our God by the blessed name of Father, we ought to know that if he is a father at all, 
he must be the very best of fathers and his fatherhood must be the highest ideal of fatherhood of which we can conceive it is as i have said a fatherhood that combines both father and mother in one in our highest ideals of both and comprises all the love and all the tenderness and all the compassion and all the yearning and all the self-sacrifice that we cannot but recognize to be the inmost soul of parentage even though we may not always see it carried out by all earthly parents but you may say what about the other names of god do they not convey other and more terrifying ideas they only do so because this blessed name of father is not added to them this name must underlie every other name by which he has ever been known has he been called a judge yes but he is a father judge one who judges as a loving father would is he a king yes but he is a king who is at the same time the father of his subjects and who rules them with a father's tenderness is he a lawgiver yes but he is a lawgiver who gives laws as a father would remembering the weakness and ignorance of his helpless children like as a father pitieth his children so the lord pitieth them that fear him for he knoweth our frame he remembereth that we are dust it is not as a judge judges so the lord judges not as a taskmaker controls so the lord controls not as a lawgiver imposes laws so the lord imposes laws but as a father pitieth so the lord pitieth never never must we think of god in any other way than as our father all other attributes with which we endow him in our conceptions must be based upon and limited by this one of our father what a good father could not do god who is our father cannot do either and what a good father ought to do god who is our father is absolutely sure to do in our lord's last prayer in john seventeen he says that he has declared to us the name of the father in order that we may discover the wonderful fact that the father loves us as he loved his son now which one of us really believes this we have read this chapter over i suppose oftener than almost any other chapter in the bible and yet do we any of us believe that it is an actual tangible fact that god loves us as much as he loved christ if we believed this to be actually the case could we by any possibility ever have an anxious or rebellious thought again would we not be absolutely and utterly sure always under every conceivable circumstance that the divine father who loves us just as much as he loved his only begotten son our lord jesus christ would of course care for us in the best possible way and could not tell us so emphatically not to be anxious or troubled about anything for he knew his father and knew that it was safe to trust him utterly it is very striking that he so often said 
your heavenly father not mine only but yours just as much your heavenly father he says cares for the sparrows and the lilies and of course therefore he will care for you who are of so much more value than many sparrows how supremely foolish it is then for us to be worried and anxious about things when christ has said that our heavenly father knows that we have need of all these things for of course being a good father he must in the very nature of the case when he knows our need supply it what can be the matter with us that we do not understand this again our lord draws the comparison between earthly fathers and our heavenly father in order to show us not how much less good and tender and willing to bless is our heavenly father but how much more if ye being evil he says know how to give good gifts unto your children how much more shall your father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him can we conceive of a good earthly father giving a stone or a serpent to a hungry child instead of bread or fish would not our whole souls revolt from a father who could do such things and yet I fear there are a great many of God's children who actually think that their Heavenly Father does this sort of thing to them, and gives them stones when they ask for bread, or curses when they ask for blessings. And perhaps these very people may belong to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, a society which is the nation's protest against such behavior on the part of earthly fathers. And yet, they never have thought of the dreadful wickedness of charging their heavenly father with things which they are banded together to punish in earthly fathers but it is not only that our heavenly father is willing to give us good things he is far more than willing our lord says fear not little flock it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom there is no grudging in his giving it is his good pleasure to give. He likes to do it. He wants to give you the kingdom far more than you want to have it. Those of us who are parents know how eager we are to give good things to our children, often far more eager than our children are to have them. And this may help us to understand how it is that it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom why then should we ask him in such fear and trembling and why should we torment ourselves with anxiety lest he should fail to grant what we need there can be only one answer to these questions and that is that we do not know the father we are told that we are of the household of god now the principle is announced in the bible that if any man provides not for his own household he is denied the faith and is worse than an infidel since then we are the household of god this principle applies to him and if he should fail to provide for us his own words would condemn him i say this reverently but i want to say it emphatically for so few people seem to have realized it it was in my own case a distinct error of immense importance when I first discovered this fact of the responsibility of my Father in Heaven.
as it were, in a single moment, the burden of life was lifted off my shoulders and laid on his, and all my fears and anxieties and questionings dropped into the abyss of his loving care. I saw that the instinct of humanity, which demands that the parents who bring a child into the world are bound by every law, both human and divine, to care for and protect that child according to their best ability, is a divinely implanted instinct, and that it is meant to teach us the magnificent fact that the Creator, who has made human parents responsible toward their children, is himself equally responsible toward his children. I could have shouted for joy, and from that glad hour my troubles were over. For when this insight comes to a soul, that soul must in the very nature of things enter into rest. With such a God, who is at the same time a father, there is no room for anything but rest. And when, ever since that glad day, temptations to doubt or anxiety or fear have come to me, I have not dared in the fact of what I then learned to listen to them, because I have seen that to do so would be to cast a doubt on the trustworthiness of my Father in heaven. We may have been accustomed to think that our doubts and fears were because of our own unworthiness and arose from humility, and we may even have taken them as a sign of a special piety and have thought they were in some way pleasing to God. But if, in their relations with their earthly parents, children should let in doubts of their love and fears lest their care should fail, would these doubts and fears be evidence of filial piety on the children's part, and would they be at all pleasing to their parents? If God is our Father, the only thing we can do with doubts and fears and anxious thoughts is to cast them behind our backs forever and have nothing more to do with them ever again. We can do this. We can give up our doubts just as we would urge a drunkard to give up his drink. We can pledge against doubting. And if once we see that our doubts are an actual sin against God and imply a question of his trustworthiness, we will be eager to do it. We may have cherished our doubts heretofore because perhaps we have thought they were a part of our religion and a becoming attitude of soul in one so unworthy. But if we now see that God is in very truth our Father, we will reject every doubt with horror as being a libel on our Father's love and our Father's care. What more can any soul want than to have a God whose name is our Father, and whose character and ways must name. As Philip said, so we find it to be. Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. It does indeed suffice, beyond what words can express. A friend of mine went one day to see a poor negro woman living in one of the poorest parts of Philadelphia, whose case had been reported to her as being one of great need. She found things even worse than she had feared. The poor woman was old, crippled with rheumatism, 
and lived alone in a poor little room with only the help of a kind neighbor now and then to do things for her. And yet she was bright and cheerful and full of thanksgiving for her many mercies. My friend marveled that cheerfulness or thankfulness could be possible under such circumstances, and said, But do you never get frightened at the thought of what may happen to you, all alone here and so lame as you are? The old negro saint looked at her with surprise, and said in a tone of the utmost amazement, Frightened? Why, honey, doesn't you know I have got a father, and doesn't you know he takes care of me the whole enduring time? And then, as my friend looked perplexed, she added in a tone of wondering reproof, Why, honey, surely my father is your father, too. And you knows about him, and you knows he always takes care of his chillins. It was a lesson my friend never forgot. Behold, says the Apostle John, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. The manner of love bestowed upon us is the love of a father for his son. A tender, protecting love that knows our weakness and our need and cares for us accordingly. He treats us as sons, and all he asks in return is that we shall treat him as a father, whom we can trust without anxiety. We must take the son's place of dependence and trust, and must let him keep the father's place of care and responsibility. Because we are the children and he is the father, we must let him do the father's part. Too often we take upon our own shoulders the father's part, and try to take care of and provide for ourselves. But no good earthly father would want his children to take upon their young shoulders the burden of his duties, and surely much less would our heavenly father want to lay upon us the burden of his. No wonder we are told to cast all our care upon him, for he careth for us. He careth for us. Of course he does. It is his business as a father to do so. He would not be a good father if he did not. All he asks of us is to let him know when we need anything, and then leave the supplying of that need to him. And he assures us that if we do this, the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep our hearts and minds. The children of a good human father are at peace because they trust in their father's care. But the children of the heavenly father too often have no peace because they are afraid to trust in his care. They make their requests known to him, perhaps, but that is all they do. It is a sort of religious form they feel it necessary to go through. But as to supposing that he really will care for them, no such idea seems to cross their minds, and they go on carrying their cares and burdens on their own shoulders, exactly as if they had no father in heaven, and had never asked him to care for them. What utter folly it all is! For if ever an earthly father was worthy of the confidence of his children, surely much more is our heavenly father worthy of our confidence. 
and why it is that so few of his children trust him can only be because they have not yet found out that he is really their father, or else that, calling him father every day in their prayers, they still have never seen that he is the sort of father a good and true human father is, a father who is loving and tender, pitiful and full of kindness toward the helpless beings whom he has brought into existence, and whom he is therefore bound to protect. This sort of father no one could help trusting. But the strange and far-off creator, whose fatherhood stops at our creation, and has no care for our fate after once we are launched into the universe, no one could be expected to trust. The remedy, therefore, for your discomfort and unrest is to be found in becoming acquainted with the Father. For, says the Apostle, ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Is it this spirit of adoption that reigns in your hearts, my readers, or is it the spirit of bondage? Your whole comfort in the religious life depends upon which spirit it is, and no amount of wrestling or agonizing, no prayers and no efforts will be able to bring you comfort while the spirit of adoption is lacking in your heart. But you may ask how you are to get this spirit of adoption. I can only say that it is not a thing to be gotten. It comes and it comes as the necessary result of the discovery that God is in very truth a real Father. When we had made this discovery, we cannot help feeling and acting like a child. And this is what the spirit of adoption means. It is nothing mystical nor mysterious. It is the simple natural result of having found a father where you thought there was only a judge. The great need for every soul, therefore, is to make this supreme discovery, and to do this, we have only to see what Christ tells us about the Father, and then believe it. Verily, verily, he declares, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, but, he adds sadly, ye receive not our witness. In order to come to the knowledge of the Father, we must receive the testimony of Christ, who declares, The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Over and over he repeated this, and in John, after grieving over the fact that so few received his testimony, he adds these memorable words. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. The whole authority of Christ stands or falls with this. If we receive his testimony, we set to our seal that God is true. If we reject that testimony, we make him a liar. If ye had known me, says Christ, Ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. 
the thing for us to do then is to make up our minds that from henceforth we will receive his testimony and will know the father let other people worship whatever sort of a god they may for us there must be henceforth but one god even the father for though there be that are called gods whether in heaven or in earth as there be gods many and lords many but to us there is but one god the father of whom are all things and we in him and one lord jesus christ by whom are all things and we by him end of chapter 5 recording by eris allen